This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Drinking with Authors. I'm your host, Erica Lance. My co-host today is... And we have the amazing honor of having Charles Gannon. Woo! <laughs> Welcome to the amazing show. Honor. Listen, it's a I, lot I, of hype. You're going to have to live up to it in a minute here. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm girding my loins. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about what we're drinking. So I am drinking 19 Crimes Banished because um, I just felt it was appropriate. Um, Vanessa, what are you drinking? Um, I feel like there's going to be an ongoing theme because I'm also drinking 19 Crimes and we did not coordinate this, but this one is not vanished. It's the, it's a red wine that's been aged in rum and a rum barrel, which is, yeah. Oh, this one's the Uprising. There you go. Well done. Mentally, they should probably sponsor this podcast. We'll see. (laughs) Chuck, what are you drinking? Well, the, the thing you'll see me pick up most often is this, which is, um, it's a mystery glass. It contains at least uh, two parts hydrogen to one part oxygen. I will not reveal any more of the contents than that. <laughs> However, it's a mystery. Uh, because because yours are about crimes. Is it, what, what was that? Like, unrepo- what is it called? 19 crimes. So this is, these are funny wine bottles, but what they do is there's a little app you can get and the person on the wine bottle will tell you the crime they were convicted of. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really appropriate that you should have those because I'm dealing the precise person that you want to tell about, you want to confess those crimes to. This is Angel Envy's bourbon, which Ooh. is actually, I believe it's in, I think it's aged in sherry or port bottles, uh, casks. So it is, while it is not an aperitif, while it is not uh, a liqueur, it does have a, a sweeter finish than most forms of bourbon. So you'll see me, you'll see me working two-fisted here. Today. <laughs> love it. Love it. <laughs> yes. Us too. No, inappropriate. Okay. So for those people living under a rock that don't know who you are, will you just give a little brief what you write? I write hard science fiction. I write, uh, alternate history, a lot of that. I write, I guess you could say space opera. My own stuff is the hard science fiction. And now coming in November, uh, the first book in my epic fantasy uh, trilogy, or probably more than that, is coming out. It's the, the, uh, the series is The Vortex of Worlds, and the title of the book is This Broken World. And uh, I'm probably best known for the Kane Riordan series. And uh, there are five books in that, not counting other side venues in, inside the universe. And uh, all of which do tie into the main one, however, and two more books uh, already under contract for that, uh, along with two further collaborations, one with Eric Flint and one with David Weber, two very great friends of mine and two people who've been huge supporters of the series since day one, probably since day minus one. Wow. So you're not busy at all, basically. You're no, no. You don't do anything. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Wow. So. How many books total do you have to your credit? Do you know? Uh, mm, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the problem. 
problem I want to have. I want to forget how many because there's just way too many. <laughs> That's a great problem to have. Um, so I'm thinking it's in the vicinity of 16 or 17. I'm not entirely. It depends on how you want to count them. One of them, for instance, one of the most recent is uh, where I am one of seven authors. Uh, how that worked is that's Murphy's Lawless, the first novel in that universe, which was six novellas, which came out and they were, they were planned ahead of time. And I was at that, in the early part of that, I was a showrunner almost more than, I mean, I was editing and making sure they worked together. But at the end, I knew I was going to write the beginning, the end, interstitial bits that created a larger arc inside of which all of those work and a couple of new characters who were sort of, uh, I, I guess you could say, operators largely behind the scenes or off stage. And so if you want to call that a book that I've written, um, you could. It doesn't feel as much like when I sit down and I write one solo. Most of my collaborations, though, the novels, as a matter of fact, um, no matter the only collaboration I've the, the Starfire collaborations, certainly the last two were pretty much equally written uh, with myself, the collaborator. And in the case of Calabar's War, uh, which is a 1632 novel, that really is almost all um, uh, Robert Waters. And, uh, and I was uh, in the role of Eric Flint, because when Eric Flint takes a look at one of my books, he basically says, yeah, it's okay. And off it goes. Um, he's, I think over the course, he's the first one to tell you this. Uh, over, so I've written one, two, three, four with him. And of those four, I think he's, he's, his biggest contribution has been really good, a really good eye for taking out what was not needed. There's probably about 6,000 words across that 800, 850,000 words that got pulled out. And he, I think, wrote something like about 2,000. Uh, but that's the way we like to work. And, and he, uh, he's very nice. He, he says, I keep trying to tell them they're your books. But they... He's the guy. He's the he's the 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 master architect. He is the uh, the genius locator of these books. So uh, his name really there wouldn't be nothing if it wasn't for him and his idea and his initial books. So um, so so if you're willing to call all of those my books, seventeen, I think, I think. Wow, that's so awesome. Well, that is awesome. What? So I I totally admire sci-fi writers i i don't write i don't write sci-fi um because it's way too technical for me so if we if we peel back the layers of time what made you decide to do that did you go get a degree in something sciency did you blow up your parents kitchen like what made you decide you wanted to write sci-fi where you're like screw this the you know, world sucks i'm gonna rewrite it <laughs> no um I would say that uh, I'm, I'm one of those individuals that it's, uh, I'm not so much sure that I found it rather than it found me. Oh. Um, and, and I'll, so my, my very quick, a very quick illustrative select bio, things I liked growing up. I was three and I used to talk. This is so, so yeah, so now I'm going to get all sorts of offers from psychologists, I think. At three, I used to go to the Natural Museum, or the, the history of the Museum of Natural History in New York City, which was a, a, a trek for us, so that I could see the, the dinosaurs. And I would, I would confab with the triceratops, uh, or his bones, as the case may be. So I don't know at that point I'm writing. Uh, time travel or, or, you know, zombie novels at that point. 
Um, time travel zombie novel, I guess. So at any that rate, that's uh, a great novel. Yeah, <laughs> but at any rate, so that's so that was one. Of, and so I, I looked at this and I learned at the age of the tender age of four, I actually mastered the pronunciation of the word paleontologist. And I wanted to be a paleontologist and write about it. Uh, at about three or four years on, now I want to be a zoologist. And I want to write about it. Then I wanted to be an astronomer and I want to write about it. And then I wanted to be an astronaut and write about, ooh, that's dangerous. No, I'll just write about it. And then I realized sometime around 11 or 12, I wanted to write about these things. And I only really want to write about and do the cool things, the experiential things, the things that are, that are not 98% brain sweat in a lab or some other largely isolated pursuit of, of, uh, of, um, of you know, a- accomplishing what are very often very quantitative, quantitative skills and tasks. Um, and people say, well, why, you know, you're talking about not wanting to be a room and alone. And my attitude to that is I'm a writer. I have a whole world in my head. I can't get it to stop. Uh, it's overpopulated, which is kind of how novels hit me. Um, a lot of times, particularly my own universe, uh, it is everything I can do, particularly when I'm doing an outline or proposal to keep up with it. It's like, it's like trying to drink from a fire hose and there's a tsunami on the other end. Uh, it just comes so fast. I don't even feel like I'm writing. I feel like I'm channeling is really what it feels like. I don't, you know, it's, it's that kind of experience. Well, so that's how of, I got here. A lot of writers. I wasn't going to be anybody else. Yeah. A lot of writers would be incredibly jealous of that. One of the things though, you're also, um, and I don't understand this technically, so forgive me when I say this, but you're like a level up or more from PhD in English literature, aren't you? You're like something super fancy. Uh, well, what I, so I, I have two masters, one in communications, one in, in English. The English led on to a PhD. Uh, what you may be referring to is either I'm, I'm the recipient of, of three actual Fulbrights, two travel Fulbrights, and I retired as a distinguished professor of English. But beyond PhD, there really isn't much. A postdoc is the sort of thing that happens to scientists uh, and, and people in those sort of fields usually. Um, I don't know of any people working in, in you know, American literature who are getting postdocs to do it. But I, uh, but I, I, stayed, as, I, I stayed pretty active. I mean, the good, the, the, the good news was that I was pretty good at that. The bad news is that I was pretty good at it. And the problem why I say that's bad news is because then you get asked to do more. Your summers get eaten up. You know, I, I was asked to revivify a graduate program. We grew 400% in the course of 18 months. Wow. So, so either I did something right or those bribes really paid off. Um, it was one or the other. And, um, and, and, but it, it was, it was difficult to maintain much involvement. And that, that took place during a session in my career between uh, roughly 1992 and about 2008. So there was 15 years where all I did, I managed to publish two stories in analog because I was busy with kids and uh, wife and moving around as an academic and being a professor. And it, was, uh, it, was all grist for a, it was all grist for a mill. Wow. When did you... when? You talked about um, all of this, you know, talking to the Triceratops. Did it have a name, by the way, or was it just the Triceratops? Um, I don't recall giving it a name. I don't think I was that invested. <laughs> I wasn't sure how invested. It could have been named yeah. for you. No, you no. Know. I, I, 
it was a long distance relationship. We were out in suburbia. I didn't have a car. My mom had to drive me in. I was three. It was several million years old. It was never going to work out. Why, why learn the name? You know, it's just not going to happen. You know, that is just, I mean, I'm saying it's a younger mentality. I mean, it was, it was that fleeting moment you could have written. Um, so going back, what made you decide to go English communications? Did you, did you go, I'm going to learn to write. I'm going to write. I'm going to do English. Or were you like, I'm going to be a teacher. Like what was the, I love dinosaurs too. I'm going to write English. Uh, essentially I want to, what I got to at the end was I want to do, I want to have reason to look at and learn about all these cool things. Imagine what it's like to be there and write, uh, write about it because doing any one of those things is fully consuming, right? You can't be, I mean, maybe there are like nine people who could be, and I probably know some of them, an astronaut and an, uh, a, a marine biologist and an expert trumpet player and stuff like that. That's, that's not me. Kathy Sullivan, who's a friend of mine, it might be her. Uh, she's the one who went up and fixed the Hubble. Shout out to Kathy. She's an astronaut. Yeah, you, right. So at any rate, um, but I, I was realistic and I said, and even three wouldn't be enough. I want to do it all. And the only way to do it is vicariously. And that meant to write about it. So it was sort of like, it was inevitably going to be the case. And I, I was storytelling from the beginning. It was always write about it to me, always meant tell stories about it. Did you, do you ever feel like you ever fall into these like research traps? Like, I don't know, you say you want to do it all, but like, do you ever feel like, okay, I need to research more about a particular subject. Do you ever feel like you kind of get stuck in the research phase before you actually even start writing? It's a, it's an oft, an oft mentioned danger. Uh, I, for whatever reason, I've managed to uh, largely be free of that trap in Part because why, during, during the time that I wasn't able to work in the field while I was a professor, um, I, I kept my hand in other things. One of the things I kept my hand in was I was developing the timeline. I was developing the universe. I was choosing, changing technologies. I was working on characters. Um, and it, was, it did two things. It gave me a great running start when, the time, when it was time to do it and, and I had a receptive uh, publisher. Um, but it also taught me exactly what you what you're talking about. You could work on a world, you work on subjects forever. And part of the pretender syndrome that I think every writer has um, is, is deeply, is, has, a, has an insidious and seductive relationship with, that, with that, that, that tendency towards, there's always that one last bit of research I could do. Yeah. Don't do it, don't go there. <laughs> You can talk to the here about a research of scarves. So this was a whole rabbit hole that she went down for her book. She's telling us the other night, I went down this rabbit hole of researching scarves from this time period for like four hours. And I'm like, is the scarf like this huge part of the book? Like, is it like a pivotal, like you need to know everything about this scarf? No, none of it's pivotal. None of it's important. Down the rabbit hole, she went for four hours on a scarf. See, I, I see because I write high fantasy, and so one of my biggest things is like, well, what if someone reads this and my religion doesn't sound, you know, authentic enough for like, you know, X, Y, Z? And so, yeah, I have to be like pulled in and be like, no, because eventually you're just like, you just have to sit and write the novel, you yeah. know, and and sometimes you have to do research later, you know. Right there. Yeah, exactly. And so it's 
it's a hard relationship I have with research. I want to do it's too a, much. She's an addict. A, Let's just admit it. I think some authors become research addicts. They use it as an excuse, but they're like, I'm going to find out how this medieval bowl was created, blah, blah, blah. And the entire words in the book are, you know, Nora held up a bowl and put the poultice in it. <laughs> but they've spent eight hours figuring out the bowl and the clay and how it was made. And none of that's relevant to the actual line in the book. <laughs> so I'm going to say that I have a, an, a triple X rated relationship with research. Mm. And what I mean by that is you do it naked. Because... No, just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. That that would be more on the order of probably public endangerment because it would send dogs and children running. Um, <laughs> but but the uh, but I call it a triple X rated because it, that's what I do. I get to a point. This is what Vanessa was was remarking. I get to a point. It's like I could either break my flow. And go, and it gets to anything from research as, what did I call that character? Was it E-R-E or A-R-E or A-R-E-A or what? You know, how is it? And I'll just put X-X-X. And then I go back and I search. I do a search for triple X. And mine I is come blank. In I put the word blank in. in mine to the point where I one time sent my editor a, a copy with the word blank multiple times. She's like, what is this? I can't, I can't edit this. You didn't even fill it in. Cause like sometimes I, I was trying to be that person was like, I'm going to go past this and I'm not going to go down that research rabbit hole. I'm just going to put the word blank. And then I know to search the word, but then sometimes I forget to go back and actually do that. <laughs> so, so one of the reasons I picked the X's is because when you see three capital X's, they from a page and unless you're writing something very different from what i write uh they have no reason being in your book uh and, and then the search finds them all but i could see that writing the word blank first of all i would have to think too much i just want to go bap, 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 and, and move before before i can lose an, an iota of, of whatever mojo makes writers write um and uh, and it's all it's easy to search so i don't i don't miss them but uh but i know i know the feeling and I know the mechanism. I use it. I so basically, for everybody listening, Chuck's advice is be triple X, which I'm <laughs> going to take for a completely different reason because of some of the stuff I write. Okay, good. <laughs> this is what the angel envies. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. I'm going to have to try it. I was telling, you know, it's funny doing this show. People give you alcohol. I actually had that happen twice this week where people are like, I had got this for you. And everything involves drinks. It's like when somebody finds out you like something, like you have a beautiful boat behind you, but people see that and go, oh my God, Chuck loves boats. So then all of a sudden, every gift you get involves boats. What the hell is that mechanism where everybody's like, I'm going to cling to this little post-it of information and you're going to have all of that. The problem is with alcohol, though, then they're like, well, what do they really think about me? Am I an alcoholic or something? What do your neighbors think when cases show up on your on your doorstep? And I was like, hmm. Yeah, when truly and no bottle is the same. Drizzly no delivers regularly because people are sending it. I'm like, you guys are really making me look like, let me just add it to my stash. Like, you come into, yeah, Vanessa's yeah. seen my countertop. My countertop is like moving with all this stuff yeah. on it. 
Yeah, it's, it's a glorious display, I will say. I mean, you can literally have your heart's desire on her, is on her table of drink beverages, but yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> and one friend bought me every flavor of this flavored vodka that she found. She bought me every single flavor. And she's like, I thought you could use this for your podcast. I'm like, this isn't flash dance. I'm not bathing in it. What the hell is all of this? Like, uh. And of course, I just went, thanks. That's awesome. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say. Okay. So what was the first work you had published? The very first? Do, <laughs> this is going to sound strange. Do fanzines count? And I'm going yes, back. Yes, of course to they modern- do. Okay, then my first work published uh, was, and it, it came with the help of somebody you really, you want to think about for your show, Jacqueline Lichtenberg. She wrote, she wrote the Embrov Zayar, House of Zayar series. Um, she was uh, one of the authors of Star Trek Lives. Uh, she was, she was that, that inflection point contact person for me when I was 12 who said, you can do this. And, uh, and so with a little bit of guidance from her, I wrote a bunch of fanfic having to do with Star Trek uh, in Ooh. 72, 73. Now, this is going to be laughable to a lot of people out there. At this time, most fanzines are mimeozines. And you knew anybody who was working at a fanzine because their, their fingers were perpetually blue because the mimeo sheets would constantly soak them in blue ink. And there was nothing you could do to get that stuff off because, of course, it had to stay on paper that might get wet. So, you know, two plus two equals blue fingers. Um, but I, the, the first, all four of these stories, they were in a series right away, right away. I'm writing series or I'm writing sagas or something. Got picked up, got picked, got picked up by a, uh, if anybody is out there in fanzine land. See, I could, I could brag about this because it's so far in the past and it's so... So it, it is such a non-claim today that, that it actually is funny. This was, these were published in Berengaria. Berengaria fanzine came not with staples, but it came with a plastic holder on the side. And the cover was four color. Now, when I say four color, I literally mean four color. It was black, blue, yellow, and white. That was it. Not four color the way we mean four or blended colors. But in fanzines, this was like, this was the keys to the kingdom. This was the, this was the, the, you know, the big kahuna. And, and wow, I was really psyched about that. And I was also publishing through uh, 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 Angie Valenza, who was uh, also known as um, Farah Shimbo. And she had, a, uh, she had a, um, a fanzine as well that ran a lot of my stuff. I was like 14, 15. Um, and a bunch of things started happening that, that, I, I went kind of falling away from that. Uh, there, was a, there were just a lot of other opportunities. I was writing. I wanted to write longer stuff of my own. Uh, was looking, we're getting towards college time. I also discovered something which scratched an itch at that age, which, I was, which was what the fiction was about. And, and I guess possibly people thought it was pulling me away from the fiction, but actually I found it really grew my skills, which was, the, this, these were the very earliest years of role-playing games. 
One of the things about role-playing games that I really like, most people, I guess, would... I, I, I wasn't that much of a player, but I, I love the idea of being a referee and building the world. One of the things I liked about that, and you will see it in any book of mine, you have the misfortune, uh, I mean, the great, the, the, the great experience of reading, um, <laughs> is that, is, is that uh, accountability is really important. And one of the things, when you think about even more than film, anything else... When you have a story and suddenly it has numbers and facts connected to it. And if you really, if you as the referee are going to be as bound to those as you want your players to be, then one of the things essentially that you're doing is you are making a world that's grounded in, in numbers and facts that are inviolable and you have to tell the story taking those into account. Well, if you're going to write science fiction, particularly one day, but you know, the, saying that I would say, no, just to, Fantasy that has internal consistency is just as important. It's just as important to do it. Maybe more important to have that because it's so easy to think that that's a free pass. That's where people get themselves in trouble because they say, ah, it's fantasy. I don't have to be. Oh, no. Let me tell you. Because, because no. the, yeah, it's actually in some ways more important. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where, yes, you can make things up, but in order to ground the reader, to make it real, like believable, you have to have a set of rules and you need to make sure you're consistent. And since some way it has to be some relatable to our world where they're like, okay, if magic exists, then this is plausible. You know what I mean? There has to be, you can't just make up, it's like, you know, the famous, uh, like everyone always gets upset in the, in the Hobbit where the birds just come out of nowhere and save them out of the trees and stuff like that out of nowhere. It's like, you don't want those moments where it just feels like it's cheated, you know, where it's just like, they just put it in just to like save the day, but it ha makes no sense. Did you, you just call out Tolkien for cheating? I just want to make sure on this podcast that when we get the angry hate mail, it's directed towards Vanessa. Who just no, called but you know it's true. People are like, "Well, come on!" Like he couldn't. There couldn't be a more clever moment in this to save them, but or but you know what I mean. So I have a question: What role playing game were you playing? Was it Dungeons and Dragons? Well, the, the first one was Dungeons and Dragons, but that got rapidly outpaced when something called Traveler came along. That's in 1977, so it trailed Dungeons and Dragons by I want to say three to four years. Uh, this was this was. This was the first science fiction role-playing game. It is still running out there. It's gone through a variety of different iterations. It doesn't have anywhere near the name, of course, that Dungeons and Dragons does. But by the same token, I would say it's not become as heavily commercialized. And uh, and it was it it told uh, from what I can tell, about eighty percent of the people who are avid purchasers and followers of Traveler have never actually been in the same room as somebody and able to play. It because it, there just aren't that many people. But the thing is the world, there used to be this thing in Traveler, which was called the, uh, it was uh, Traveler's, Traveler's News Service. And every magazine would start with wire copy. The wire copy was full reportage from this universe. That's how players got hints of things to talk about what this might mean, what was coming down the road. It was, it was I was really impressed with what I would call the, the, the fairly effortless erasure between this is a this is a made-up world but it has so many of the properties and details and and nuances and gestures that we associate with our own world it really made a very easy on-ramp for believability and for immersivity um i think i think dungeons and dragons has been a hugely successful game 
Uh, it's obviously become far more complicated. It's branched in far more directions. Uh, it's spawned, I don't know how many worlds. I, I stopped really, I stopped playing Keeping Count a long, long time ago. But, but you know, you can't, you can't not know it. It's almost the word that is, the words that are synonymous with tabletop in-person role-playing games. Um, but by the same token, by, by, by bringing, by the same, I, I said token, not token. Um, by, the, by the same token, um, it's generated so many worlds and so many views that when you say Dungeons and Dragons, people will say, yeah, which one do you like? You know, what, what version or what world? Or, but, but Traveler has, has <coughs> I would say its great strength is that it has told one fairly consistent story all the way through. And it's developed that story and it's developed that universe. And it has, uh, it has a great deal of grounding in that. It's a very rich environment. Um, it, some people probably consider it austere. It's not lush storytelling, but it's that sort of storytelling. I think what they're doing, and I actually use this in my, um, I use something like this in my, in my anthology, uh, which I only wrote one story in it called Lost Signals, where I framed the entire thing in full reportage, wire copy. So that, so that, uh, because there's something about that that makes it feel like you know you're reading a paper, and all of a sudden you say, and and it, it's it's written in journalistic style, and it's written with that same sort of care because you know the bottom line is most journalists are also covering their ass. They don't want to say something that they're going to be you know they're they don't want to be sued for libel, they don't want to be sued for misrepresentation, they don't blah 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 blah. They don't want to give away sources, and all of those nuances are there in the tone. Of the of the sort of of these traveler news service blurbs that were there, and this goes back to they started writing uh, Journal of the Traveler Aid Society something like seventy nine eighty, and it was right there. It's always been there, and it was a huge inspiration. And Mark Miller, if you're watching this, he's the creator, and we still we still are in contact and, and are actually working on some things together after all this time. Uh, you did this. You infected me. So, uh, so at any rate, you know, it's not often that somebody of your stature goes, you infected me like that's, <laughs> you know, I'm glad we were able to capture it here on drinking with authors. I do have to ask you, do you have your fan fiction from when you wrote those Star Trek stories? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Uh, I don't throw things out. Uh, I think that, uh, I think that all of us made everything that I am right now is made by all the things that came before um good and bad things i would i would want to have see the light of day things that i wouldn't but the bottom line is posterity will have them at the very least because i think that's uh why would one want to disavow who you were or what you were doing at any earlier time it seems no, I think uh, that we we actually in our publishing company we published um an anthology for the first time last year called teen angst and we had people send in their journals, their short stories, their diary entries, their songs. We're doing it again this year because all of us have these things that we wrote that at the time, of course, they were so momentous. You're 15, you wrote, you're published. It's epic. Yeah. Of course, you look back on it now and go, what the hell was that? I actually found recently a notebook of Harry Potter fan fiction that I'm I'm not sure yet if my soul is ready for anyone in the public to see that associated my, with my real name. But, you know, it's it's true because when I look at that, like, that was, like, the first bit of writing I ever did, like, fiction. And it was the first time I felt when I was writing, I was like, oh, I could do this. Even though it was, like, 
god awful and just to see how I am now as a writer it's it's just it's nice to see that progression in a way so my question I, is I, what were the stories about your Star Trek stories what were your stories I'm a huge Trekkie fan I'm also a huge Star Wars fan I was at the opening night of Chinese Man Theater I was three years old of Star Trek yes Saw Chewbacca, Princess Lake, the whole thing. Star Wars. I, I you meant Star Wars. You said Star Trek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah. Huge Trek fan. Huge Trek fan. So, and there sometimes you don't have the crossing of the streams with that. But what did you write about? I'm super curious. Uh, the first, the first story will tell you what. It's funny. I had to, I had to fix something like this and make it travel too. Um, <laughs> The first story was about the, the, the classic three having to go back to Organia. Oh. Um, if you remember, they're the ones who sort of put the kibosh on the war. Yeah. And they basically say, you know, you're already managing to break this. You're determined to do this. And it's too exhausting for us. So we're going to take our hands off the wheel. You're on your own now. That kicks off a essentially an arms race and other problems and the development of um, a new ship. I, I thought that uh, one of the things that struck me about the original series is that the Enterprise is clearly it's a great it's a ship built for exploration. It has some significant military potential, but it is by no means a purpose built military ship. And I mean, I'm thinking this when I'm 12 years of age, so I guess there's something deeply wrong with me. I was uh, about to say, when you told me your age, I was like, already infected. Yeah. About it? it just it just struck me because you look at the Klingon ships and you can see they're built for it. They're streamlined. They have smaller crews. I mean, if you did, if you if you listened or looked at anything that was was coming out about them that the producers were releasing, and and remember the the show had been out what so it I think it stopped. It's the OT the original was ended in '69, if I'm not mistaken. So now you're talking about me in 72. The first movie hasn't happened yet, but there has been a huge, a huge amount of merchandising. I mean, Star Trek probably made, it did make far more money in the first half decade after it went off the air in merchandising an animated series than it ever did when it had to fight for its survival on TV. And so I didn't have, I was not one of these people who had the things all over their walls and stuff. Not that I think there's anything wrong with it. It's just that I, that's not what I was doing. And uh, I thought to myself, everything I, every time I looked at the Klingon, I think it's called the bird of prey. I was looking at yeah. the, the crew is like, the crew is a half. You know, it's, 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 it's small. It's, it's got, it's got, it's got, it's, the bottom line is the Klingons have more primitive technology largely. And we know that. And yet they're able to make something that can stand toe to toe with this Federation ship. The reason, because this is built for one, it's got one job. And, and I started to think, you know what, somebody, somebody back at Starfleet is going to fast track a program to create the answer to that. It's going to be an arms race. I love and that's that what I 12 years old. You were like, I know what I'm going to do because the average 12 year old is thinking this. <laughs> that is amazing. It's so amazing. Okay. We actually have to take a quick break. We will be right back.
This is the voice of Drinking With Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Okay, so we were talking about so Star Trek. He wrote these fanfic stories, and I love this entire premise. So I was a D and D player with the box set where you had to color in the dice, and I was a female player. Which at the time, now it's like whatever, but at the time we were like this rare. We were like unicorns that were female and knew how to play the game, like those so, things. So you and Jody Lynn Nye must have bonded immediately on this. When oh she my was god, I love show. Jody Lynn Nye so much. Oh my, and Bill. We had yeah. so much fun. And uh, that's how, obviously, we met you. But I had so much fun with them. Yeah. And she pulled out her thing of dice. I was going to ask you, do you ever game with them? No, no, I never have. Uh, gaming is something that I, I just, every once in a while, I get a chance to do it. And I love it. Uh, if, But I'm, I'm also picky in the sense that, you know, it's like, it's, it, it's I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm how do, how do I put it? There's, there's what I'm going to call mid-teen role-playing, which is all about the sizzle. And there isn't even any steak there. It's all just the vapor. You know, it's all yeah. just the smell. And uh, that has, it never had much appeal for me. Um, but I have, I would, I would, I love to watch it because it means people are getting excited about the experience and if they stay with the experience, they will find that the experience will grow with them. Just, yeah. as, just as they're going to grow into new clothes, they're going to grow into new kinds of gaming. And I think it's, a, I think it's a, a, a wonderful thing for writers, too. And the reason I say that is, okay, um, comment out of left field, but it's been on my mind that, that gamers and people who think in that gaming way have a lot. Writers have more in common with them than they do with people who make films. And the reason for that is because, in my opinion, among other things, as we're saying about Star Trek, although Star Trek, I think, was a little different. Um, if, you're, if you're making films, the bottom line is, if you can't see it through this, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. If, if marketing cares about it, merchandising, yeah, okay, then maybe we have to do some more. Maybe we're, we want to leave a, a couple of plot holes here so that we can spin off a comic book or something like that. But for the most part, they don't care. But when you design a game, just like when you write a novel or even a short story, because sometimes I've, I've written novellas that have taken every bit as much work as a full-length novel. Um, you, you're thinking about, there is, no, there is no restrictive frame. It's like a constant floating panoramic shot. It's, it's virtual reality. Wherever you turn, there's the world. Something's got to be in that world. It's got to be there for a reason. There's got to be uh, that sort of thought that goes into it. And writers do that. Game designers do it. And quite frankly, it's optional at most if you're in film. And usually when you think about how many director's cuts there are, it tells you that's a, that's a sign. That's like a little litmus test of just how much more would have been there. But somebody said, eh, I don't know. It's going to be harder to find. You know, we, we might lose 7% coverage on theaters given the fact that it, you're looking at a two-hour, 42-minute runtime. I don't know. You know, we're competing. It's summer. We're, there's going to be feel-good movies. How many... 
you know, this is this. No, take, take another 12 minutes out, take another 14 minutes out, please. It just makes it that much easier to sell. And then suddenly they go back in and they're, they're having to, they're having to carve up their baby because that's what you're doing. And that's not how I wanted to tell stories. I was in the industry. I left it for that reason. No. And the, I love that you said that I've written plays and screenplays and not like, Oh my God, I've written screenplays. I'm not doing that, but it is, it's very different. And I've given stuff to directors and it's the first time I did that. And I gave it to a director and they were like, I'm going to make this my own and blah. And I was like, oh. like, like just whimpering watching what happened in the screenplay. I was like, this sucks. But at the same time, I kind of got the Stephen King philosophy. I'm like, screw it. If you want, there you go. I wrote it. You can, you have your vision, you do your thing. But I agree with you on role-playing because having role-played a lot, but then having been a dungeon master or the, the operator of the game, it makes you think on your feet and create on your feet. Like to me, it's almost a writing exercise because as much as you can spend, and I've seen... Grandmaster, I don't do this, but spend hours meticulously laying out maps and this whole plot line. And then your characters that you're playing with go left. And you're like, okay, but that's, but that's not on the page. And if you don't, if you can't immediately start creating this world that you're talking about, this panoramic world that's existing outside of this dungeon you've written with all these creatures, right? You, you will get stuck. And I've seen people get stuck doing that because never have I ever seen characters just follow along with what they're supposed to do. I always thought it was funny looking at modules because I was like, unless you lock them in a place where they are forced to go forward and there's no other option, they could just open the door and leave. And then that entire dungeon is scrapped, mm -hmm. right? Because they're like, you know what? I want to go have lunch. So I'm going to leave. And <laughs> what the hell do you do? And, and one of the things, the, one of the ways that arguably you can limit that, and I find this, uh, the, the, best, the best opponents are, are smart non-player characters. Because if the, if the player characters ever do them dirt, uh, usually the, a smart non-player character will want to dirt, do dirt back for whatever reason and for whatever ends. Nothing tends to focus player attention and perspective than, than the, the idea that they're in a world and they can just wander around and do anything they want. No, their prior actions have forward reaching deeds. And now every time they say, ah, maybe we'll just do this. Or maybe it's like, yeah, but are those guys watching? You know, and, and that actually, it, I'm not saying that it's a cheap trick to keep people on track. I don't think it does. But, but you can predict a little bit more what they're likely to be concerned with and what sort of things they're they're very less they're much less likely to go off on a wild tear simply because if somebody's going off on a wild tear without watching their six and all the sort of things that that involves then they're going to find that roll up new characters you know that that's what's going to happen because somebody smart is going to take advantage of that no that's true it's like the deck of um what is it deck of many things where you can have wishes i'm like just throw that crap away never use it <laughs> if you have a smart dm dungeon master saying that for the noobs out there you're screwed so if you have a smart person never use a wish ever in the entire universe it's the worst thing you can do 
I think you should play. I'm just going to put a plug for when Jody's listening that I think you should play a game with Jody Lynn and I, and I've been invited. So I want to be there and watch this because it would be amazing. I Sounds like you know should be part I'm of it. To, right? Because I want to witness this. <laughs> so let, when you, um, so you wrote Star Trek, what made you decide to go into the realm of high fantasy? Because you are, you've written, you're talking about a three-part series. It's probably going to be a 30-part series. Totally got it. But um, <laughs> what made you decide to go into the realm of high fantasy? Because it's, it's not, it's very different. Like the, the voice and everything like that from sci-fi. Yep. This is, this goes to the, um, this, this is a wonderful illustration that the, the sequence perceived by somebody on the outside may be completely at odds with the actual history inside. And what I mean by that is I've actually had this idea. It's evolved for almost 40 years. Wow. But yeah, this is not the, the, the opportunity to publish it, to have the time and the space to publish it is, is actually it's been the, the contract was signed in 2015. But the thing is, I haven't had time. Look, I have, this is one of those things where you, you, I am blessed with the most wonderful opportunity that some people may be mistaken and call a problem, which is I have more contracts. I usually have contracts that would, it would take me three or four years to fulfill. That is, that this is the great, if you get given a gift like that, you never complain. You get up every day and there is a song in your heart. If you know what that means, it means I get to live my dream at least three to four more years. And, uh, and you just go with that. Um, but I'm, as you've seen, I'm, I'm do a lot of collaboration in the ring of fire series with Eric Flint. Um, I did, I, I did three books in Starfire. Um, I've now done recently two books in Black Tide Rising, John Ringo's universe. Um, I was at the point where, yes, I'd, I'd come out with five novels in my own IP, but it was my only IP. <laughs> and I, I, it was, you know, it, it's like, so now it's time. And so the contract was there from 2015, but this was literally the first chance I've had to do it, which is why I'm writing the second one. I find that I write a little bit shorter and I write certainly a lot faster if I don't do just a book and put a series aside. Now what I'm trying to do is do two stories, one, to, one half right after the other. So I've got two, turn them over to the publisher. They can, they can schedule releases. She can, Tony at Bain can schedule a release usually within a year of each other. So you've got the sense of momentum. And so I'm, I'm right away writing the next book in that series right now. But, it, but to say it's new, it's only new. The world thinks it's new for me because it's never the panels I've been asked to, to be on. It's never the things I've been asked to comment on, but doesn't mean I haven't done it. Doesn't mean I haven't, uh, haven't had this in mind for a long time. That's awesome. How much do you, um, I don't want to say journal is not the right word, but how much do you keep notes and track, like having that story for a long time in your brain? How, how have you kept track of what you wanted to do with it? Is it just there in your epic brilliance and you're like it is ruminating in my brain or have you been taking notes oh ooh. okay cell phone cell phone <laughs> and the cell phone has on it a program a free app called tape talk it was designed in germany i believe for people who want to just sit in a lecture and let it run 
So it's not restricted to a five minute runtime or 10 minute runtime that most of the apps that come usually bundled in a phone. This can go on, which, and as you can probably tell from our interview thus far, I can go on too. Um, <laughs> so what I'll do is I have, uh, I will have, like I was saying at the start, I have these tsunami. It, it's like, it's like, you know, sort of these fire hose things. I get these ideas. I've been getting ideas on uh, Vortex of Worlds and recording them specifically for that since 2011. And they've just been piling up. And now there's another, oh, this was a lifesaver because the problem with this is now you have to listen to them all. No, you don't. Now there's an online app, a live app called Otter. Are you familiar with it? Otter AI, otter.ai? No, but I'm writing it down right now. It's the word otter.ai. When you see it, it may change your life. I, I know that sounds like, it's like now I'm going to be Billy Bob, whatever, and, and sell you floor polish that also is a salad dressing. But no, there's more. <laughs> uh, but really, this is, this is that, it is that. In, my voice must be a delay. Either that or my humor travels at the speed of smell. I don't know. Um, but at any rate, uh, it's, both are probably true. Uh, I'm not commenting. Go ahead. Okay. So I, I didn't tell you what I was infected with, did I? And anyway, so um, oh, yeah, right, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not adding it to my phone because I'm I'm ready what, to have my life changed. Otter AI is far better. It is better at voice recognition. So you're familiar, I'm sure, with Dragon and all the stuff that Nuance puts out, which is voice recognition, which mm -hmm. takes a huge amount of time to teach properly, particularly if you write, I think writing fantasy and science fiction is it's nightmare because there's so much special vocabulary for it that it just constantly gets wrong. Now, uh, pals of mine, David Weber swears by it. When he broke his wrist, that was the only thing out there. And in two weeks he had it trained up. I understand why he sticks with it. Uh, when, when uh, SM Sterling, Steve Sterling broke his wrist, not so much so, so many years later, I said, you ought to get this thing that David has. And I became, the, I guess, the proselytizer of voice to text. Otter AI works, works differently. It is so much better than Google. It is so much better than anything working on your phone. As a matter of fact, given how bad it is now that they're using, you probably know that they went from, say a word, the program will recognize that sound and will put that word in. Now it's more context-driven, more AI-driven, and it stinks. I can't be begin to tell you some of the things that it's mistaken. Um, one of them is absolutely obscene. Thank God I read my phone before I sent it out. We can come back to that if you like. Oh, yeah, so totally, because I actually just decided to start sending it. If I'm, I'm doing voice to text to friends, I just send it and they go, did you just do voice to text? And I'm like, yeah, of course it's his penis. What do you expect? I was talking about something completely different. Oh, no. The best is when I, um, I invited a friend to go to a football game during and it was supposed to rain that day. And I was like, oh, no worry. You know, if it starts raining, we'll just duck under the uh, duck under the, uh, you know, and then D became an F. And then it became a, a whole different other conversation where my friend was like, excuse me, did you just invite me to have sex with you? And I'm like, no, no, that's not what I was trying to do. I swear. Kind of kinky place though. <laughs> Haven't been under the bleachers since I was 17. Yeah. Anyhow. <laughs> it was, it was one of the worst, like worst things I've ever done nope. in my life. It was nope. 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 I got a better, better one. I've got a better one. I've got a better one. I think I may have the best. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I was, I was leaving a, a, 
a response to somebody about a story idea and a plot point that I didn't think was something we had to worry about. So I say, so I, I, I spoke into it. I said, it's fundamentally extraneous. And I looked down and said, I have a fun extra penis. <laughs> <laughs> See, me, the way I am, I would have just hit send and then put figure it out. And then, <laughs> oh. like, you know, but I'm going to, I'm going to look into this. No pictures and it didn't happen. You know, it doesn't exist as the case may be. But, but, um, but Otter AI is good because here's what you can do. You can take all of those voice texts, all of the, the, the voice recordings you've made. Otter AI will not only do a marvelous job, far better. If you have something complicated that, that Google is, is jamming up on, go to Otter AI, turn it on, do it to Otter AI, capture it, paste it. Believe me, you will save time because you don't have to go and now navigate with your fingers around bloody Google and the little one line at the bottom trying to correct everything when you can only see one line at a time. Do I have an issue with this? Damn right I do. Now, what, <laughs> what's really... You seem pretty passionate about this topic. Weird. You, but... you are, and here's why. I had all of this stuff built up, and I'm thinking, you know, well, the thing I always dreaded before I started a book was I've been compiling thoughts about books. I've been, right now, I'm not compiling mostly stuff about the next fantasy book. I already know what that is. I've already done that. I'm working on the next science fiction book. So I'm working, in a sense, on three books simultaneously. I'll be editing the one that's come back to me, if any revisions are needed. I'll be writing the one I'm writing. But my brain, for some reason, is saying, yeah, 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 but that's not what, really, what the new stuff is what's exciting. And that's what I'm making the notes on. So I pile up all these notes, hours of notes. But now, Otter AI, you can upload any WAV file. It will translate it for you, however many you have. Let me tell you, a process that used to take the better part of a week, sorting through, finding what I wanted, transcribing, figuring out what I, because you don't want to transcribe every damn word, but making the judgment call. I don't have to make the judgment call. I have transcripts. And every time they, and you still have the recording, and it, Otter has it. So you can then pull up the file on Otter, press the button to play, See where it's going because it's highlighting the phrases it's saying. And when it gets to the point that it, it didn't understand, it'll, you will hear what you said so you'll know what it is. Now, in addition to this, you can teach Otter a lot of words. That's, I find that more time, time costly than going back because it's good to hear the notes again anyhow. And then I get a chance to, to say, oh, that wasn't what I meant at all and, and do that. But I'm a, a huge fan and, and I promise I do not get a cut of their profits for this, although damn it, I should. So I was just pitching an otter to hire you is what I, I think I heard is you were pitching why. He's hired, Vanessa. He's just not telling us. It's fine. We're going to put him on the podcast. Everybody's going to get it. He's going to get a cut. He's going to be like, I knew I went on that show for a reason. All <laughs> 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 part of my nefarious scheme. You know, it, it actually wouldn't surprise me if you were that clever. So I'm just going to throw that out there. I I do have a question, though. Um, I do this all the time. I take voice memo notes when I have an idea because they just strike me in, of course, completely random times. And I'm like, this is epic dialogue. It's not always epic dialogue, but I think it is at the time I'm saying it. And I put it in the... Because that's your 14-year-old mind working. <laughs> it's epic dialogue! <laughs> This is brilliant. Sometimes I'll go back and listen and go, delete. Like, what the hell was I thinking that moment? But do you, when you're talking about looking at 
future books and then future books of the future books and having three going at the same time. First of all, that's dizzying. But um, how do you, how does your, how does your thought process work on doing that? Do you take notes? How do you do keep track of all the awesomeness that's going on in your mind? Uh, to, to respond without, without caveat would be awesomeness only in the opinion of some. Um, but at any rate, uh, it, I like it enough to try to write it to there. Um, that'll, that'll just have to do for me. And uh, well, people are buying it and stuff, so I can put it in the awesomeness category. I have checked and verified this. Okay. All right. Whatever you say. So, at any rate, um, we uh, it's it's really not that much of an effort. The stuff that really that really hits me, I kind of I have a better memory for than what time do I have to pick up my daughter from soccer? Uh, it's it, not because I don't love my daughter. I do, but it it I do have my little bit of ADD, not so much that it's ever really impacted my life, but enough that I always, I have all of these sort of tricks and traps to make sure that I don't, you wouldn't believe how many reminders I had set up for today. And one of the reasons that I had the reminder set up for today is why I also scheduled two other interviews on this day. And this was my interview day and I couldn't forget any of them, damn it. And that's, these are sort of the tricks that I use to overcome what my, my ADD is, but um, they really sort of, um, they fall into place. And one of the reasons they fall into place, what I mean by that is when I'm well ahead of the book I'm writing, it's largely conceptual. It's, oh my gosh, if these people know that, and these aliens know this, and this one is traveling from that planet to that planet, they're suddenly going to run afoul of this. And that's a great way to bring it. They would naturally come across this unrevealed series secret, blah, blah, blah. That I'll record. Now, that's none of that. It will, it will motivate what I write, of course. It'll, it'll, it's, the, it's the bare bones of, 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 a, of a sort of a plot point, if you will. But I don't start thinking in dialogue until I get fairly close. And then I'll use some dialogue. Then some dialogue will come out. For instance, the dragon in this, uh, this broken world, I, I had so much fun doing voice to text because he's a, he's a multi-century uh, 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 snark pedant. That sounds amazing. That and, sounds amazing. And it was too much fun. It, you know, it was like I would start talking about what he's going to say, and then I found myself in it. And it was just too much fun. It's like, I can't stop. I can't stop. <laughs> so, so that you know, sort of it's, thing. It's, it's interesting for me, a lot of dialogue drives my story. Like, I think there are authors that have both sides, like that are like, let me do the framework and then I'm going to insert the dialogue to, you know, do the thing. And then there are those that are like, dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. Let me build the scene around this dialogue that's happening and explain the, you know, what we're looking at for people. I think it's that snarky dragon sounds for amazing. me. I find uh, it depends on the on the genre. I tend to like really focus a lot on the scenery when it becomes high fantasy. But if I write more contemporary pieces, then it tends to be more like that, where it's I know the dialogue, the dialogue and the inner thoughts come out more, and then I'm building everything around that bit as well. I don't know. For me, it's it depends on genre. So. No, I agree. Okay, I have to I have to switch before we run out of episode because I want to talk about 
One of my favorite groups of fans are sci-fi fans because they're very, they're very fun people because a lot of times they're, to me, they're very particular and like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You have noticed this, have you? (laughs) From what are the, you know, you're about to go into high fantasy. That's a whole different group of fans and a lot of people dressing up, but what are your, what have you been your experience? You think cosplay hasn't essentially taken over everything? <laughs> it, it has. I mean, if you're, if you're lucky like me and you write contemporary in horror and erotica, like people don't dress up as your characters. Cause yeah, but um, I, I see that completely, but what have the fans been like? Could you have encountered fans back when, fans did not have the access they do now i love that fans have the access to authors and stuff that they do now where you had to almost seek out authors 10 20 years ago to find them you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. they weren't as prominent it wasn't easy to reach them if you saw them in a flyer that they were going to be at a location yay go do that so let's talk about your fans for a moment that are obsessed with you I don't think any, I hope none are obsessed with me. I'd be a very disappointing object of obsession, I think. That's uh, accurate, but uh, continue. Okay, thanks. Um, I'll, I'll recover sometime next week, I think. At any rate, uh, <laughs> uh, my fans have been really, uh, they've just been great. I mean, I know that sounds, that sounds like, my fans are great. Okay, what's the paid for line? But the bottom, the bottom line is my fans have always been considerate. Uh, maybe some of that has to do with my presence on social media. For instance, I will not, I insist on, on two things uh, and they're, they're deeply intertwined on, if you come on my Facebook page, I'm going to want two things. I'm going to want civility and I'm going to want uh, a res- an, an innate respect for the opinion of the other. That doesn't mean agreement. It just means that you don't savage somebody. It's not enough that you use polite language. Uh, it's, it's uh, people should come on. My attitude is if you wouldn't say it in person with somebody sitting across the table from you who outweighs you two to one and doesn't have that and has that because they work out a lot, the bottom line is you shouldn't be doing it online. It's just, it's. You should do a TED talk for every Twitter user ever because I feel like um, uh, most people don't. They think that you're hiding behind that wall and then, you know, they spew the most. Because they can. Because they can. And unfortunately, I think Twitter plays to and encourages the darkest part of certain certain human temptations. which is one of the reasons why I don't do a lot on Twitter. I'm there, but I don't use it much. Um, you go to Facebook, you'll, you'll find it. And there are two reasons for that. One, I don't, trying to be, cl- if you're trying to be entertaining in 128 characters or even 200 characters, the bottom line is you're probably going to be wise cracking. You're not going to be, you don't have the time to develop an idea to add nuances. Facebook gives you that chance. Also, Facebook doesn't happen as quickly. You can post something on Facebook and people might not see it for the better part of a day. Twitter, I've watched people's careers destroyed in 45 minutes when they weren't even 
on Twitter because somebody heard something. They took it out of context. People ran with it. It was connected to, I don't know, cause du jour. And, uh, and everybody got their, has in, their knickers in a twist and that was it. And it oh, was, yeah. and, and I just, I, I consider this, it's not like this is new to human nature. Uh, but, but I don't think technology brings us so much things that are new to human nature as it's, they're different shaped lenses and they take parts of human nature and they allow them to essentially manifest differently. And Twitter of all of them, anything that fast, where actually it's not just that you can act that fast. If you don't act that fast, you're behind the feed. Part of the part of being on Twitter is to be out ahead of the path. So in other words, don't think act. And in that, usually what comes is, and, and how do I get attention paid to me? By saying something outrageous. If you're that fast and witty, good for you. But for most people, it, it's a much lower denominator of what I would call quality of content. And it tends to be uh, kind of savage at the expense of other people, whether those are the people in the feed or not. And you know what? If you, if you, if you zoom back in time, you just go back 50 years and you try to do that in your town, you are not okay. There's no party that will have you. You know, you'll be shunned routinely. And it was the way the communities maintained. You know, I know a lot of people would say that's tone policing or it's whatever, the, the, again, the, 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 the phrase du jour is. But the bottom line is there's a, there's a need for, I think, there's got to be limits. There've got to be some limits. There's unless you want to say there doesn't have to be any, any, uh, any courtesy left at all, any civility left at all. Um, then it has to come from someplace. And accountability for what we say, immediately or long term, is essential to that. That's been that's been the way that more fistfights have not broken out. But now it's gone. So you watch people on Twitter and even Facebook and places like that saying how they kill each other or they, you know, all the doxing that's gone on. This is, to me, this is just, it's, it's, um, we, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say, Hey, kids get off my lawn. Um, but, but what we have ain't great. And no, I, 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 part of it is that it's, for me, it's not a true conversation. So there was a time when, you know, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in every aspect of my life. Anyone who knows me, I am the most bluntly honest person. Like I don't do the whole, I'm not good at sugarcoating anything. Um, but I'm a firm believer in that you are honest and you have the conversation and you don't assume when people assume things, it's so terrible. And if you don't go, hey, I heard this thing, no matter how demonstrative it is about another person, to go, hey, I heard this thing, like, Vanessa, you're inviting your friend to football games to have sex with them under the bleachers. Did you do that? Um, and you don't, like, actually find out before you go town crier that Vanessa's inviting people to sleep under the bleachers with her. It's, and I learned this in a high school from a situation that I ran into, and it it made me change my complete view of it. And the fact that we're not having conversations anymore and we're basing opinions on very little information makes us seem ignorant more than anything else, I think. Right. Well, also with technology, as much as it's great to have information and delivered in a quicker manner, 
it's very hard to convey feeling because you can say something in true compassion, but it comes off very like harsh. You know, if you don't type it the right way, or I, I've had it where someone was like, well, you didn't put enough emojis in there. So I wasn't sure if you were being mad at me or not. I'm like, what? Like the, the level of my message is based off how many emojis I put in. Like I need to put 10 smiley faces so you know that I'm, you know, not mad at you, but I'm just trying to explain how I'm feeling, you know? And so, you know, you get that loss in translation. And then also that whole feeling like if I, if I put out a message out there and if I don't respond back in like five seconds, I'm disregarding someone though. It just means like, no, no, I, I was working my day job for eight hours straight and I didn't have time to look at my phone. And that's why it took forever for me to respond. And so it's just, it, it, it's, it's, it, there's definitely a darker evil to it all. It's true, but we're going back to the fans because I have a question before we go down this very dark path at the end of the podcast. I guess the, um, the, 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 the point being from the top of this is that most of the people who interact with me on my group pages or on, on I have two and on my, uh, on my own page, they understand that. And actually the other fan, the, the people who are on there will police those or give hints to those who don't, who haven't gotten the memo yet. And it's been very civil. And I think, and my attitude when I was a teacher, my attitude as a, as a, when I'm doing writing workshops and things like that is you find, you find the positive, not because you're a Pollyanna, but because if you want to be heard, if you want to be heard clearly, make the first thing you do is you let a person know, I see you. I, I know you have feelings. I'm going to find something that, that addresses that and celebrates that whether regardless of what comes next there may be a lot of challenges that have to be worked through but that first act is really very important and i've tried to do that with with like i said fans and readers and and and, uh, and people in workshops and i think what happens is um you, what you what you put out you get back and i've been very fortunate in that regard what about in person before we wrap up this podcast what about in person because I'm including Meeting person. fans in person is a very interesting experience, I think, for a lot of writers, especially because we tend to be, not me, but we tend to be a more humble bunch of humans when a fan comes up and you, like, they do that fan girl or fan boy or non-gendered fan moment where they're like, oh my God, it's Jordan! You know, what was that like the first time that happened for you? That doesn't happen. <laughs> Uh, you can't tell me it never happens. Nobody walks up and is just beyond thrilled to meet you. Let's put it like this. I think there's something, and I, I, I don't know that it's something I do consciously, but my attitude is I've never really felt that way about a writer. I've never felt that way in general about other people. I don't expect they're going to feel that way about me. I kind of feel we, we're all walking through this life with the with the same sort of challenges and the same sort of uh, weaknesses and foibles and the bottom line is i don't take myself that seriously and i so i don't know if if that radiates out or something like that but the bottom line is the fan comes to me uh and if they if they the ones who've been louder i'll, I'll simply I'll, I'll look and i'll say yep that's me hi <laughs> and the bottom line is you can generally the, the most it gets is it, it comes right down you know it's sort of like there's no reason to participate in this uh, i'm i'm going to listen to you 
Uh, and the thing is, I I'm, I'm actually good with names that are different. That is, if your name is Aloysius, right, or, or, or Dagmar, or something like this, assuming we're not in the Czech Republic, where there are lots of Dagmar, but if, assuming that it's something like that in the U.S., um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably remember the name. But what I will always remember is if you tell me something about yourself, and fans are frequently sort of, I think, they, they what, you remember that? It's like that you were in the army and then you're stationed in Germany and it wasn't sure whether your wife was going to come with you or that uh, I was in this, I, I'm not in this wheelchair because of, because of an accident, because of a recurring condition I've had. And I will not remember the name because when you think about names in our society, we cycle the top 300 for each one of the genders relentlessly. Hi, Mike. Oh, good to see you, Mike. Michael, nice for you to stop in. You know, it, it, no, I'm not going to remember that. I remember the things that are individual and everybody's got an individual story. And that's the way I approach fans, um, which, which is, uh, I think fans, uh, I, I'm not the sort of person that gets mobbed. Uh, I don't think I'm known by face. My books do not have that kind of a claim. I think I have a, I have a very dedicated fan base, but I don't think I'm, I'm, um, I do not expect to sell a New York Times bestseller, although I would be thrilled to do so. Uh, I, I understand where the center of the bell curve is. I also understand that, that the center of that bell curve is, um, is sales. There's another bell curve I'm more interested in. That's the bell curve of what I will call on one side, maybe that's not called a bell curve, a spectrum of contemporary high appeal and durability. There are novels that five years from now, no one's going to be even remember they were written. They'll sell like crazy. Some of them people will remember vaguely the title of. Them. Then there are other ones. The tragedies are the ones that get barely get published. And then after the person is dead, they, only then they get discovered. But for some reason, they tend to stand the test of time. Um, I am not willing to become, I think, distant enough from that latter pole to necessarily hit the center of the sales bell curve, which is all about the moment. And, and part of the swift movement, I think, of a lot of popular fiction, contemporary popular fiction, is because it's rooted in the moment. It's, it uses the vernacular of the moment. It uses the issues of the moment. And guess what? 15 years from now, it's going to be really dated. You go and you read science fiction of the sort of popular variety that was just 30 years ago. It looks terribly, terribly outdated. All the reliance on vernacular and, and the sort of the way it's, it's sort of trying to plug itself into the, the energy of whatever's going on in society at that moment. And then you pick up something by Wells and you say, my God, this, this is still a great story. And you know what? I want to be Wells. I don't want to, as long as I'm making enough money, I want to be Wells. I don't want to be the person if, if, if getting if what it takes to get a New York Times bestseller, and I'm not saying it does, because I'm not saying that every book that makes a bestseller doesn't have these properties. I'm just simply saying there's a mentality of shooting for the bestseller. Uh, I've been fortunate, all the books have been national bestsellers, but as you guys know, that's a very different, that's a very different kettle of fish than New York Times bestseller. And I'm not troubling myself over much about that. But the bottom line is I'm always hit, I, I have a great batting record and you can win playing singles and doubles baseball. And I think, I think you are in that category with Wells, though. I, I really do. Because, you know, when you look at what your fans talk about 
and the dedication and the referrals and the going back and stuff like that. I think that's what makes a difference because you can read something that's very sensationalized to your point, but do you go back to it? Is it your thing? Are you invested in it? And your fans are invested in what you've written. And that's invested a huge in number who reread author. everything every time a new book's come out. <laughs> reread the whole thing going in. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think you've achieved that status maybe and just not realized you have. Yeah. So. I think it's harder when it's your own work. But, you know, it sounds to me like you are more timeless in the sense that years from now, your books are still going to be relevant. And that makes you, I, I don't know, because I, I think I'm, oh, I've also been that kind of person that's like wants to shoot for the New York Times bestseller. But then also, you know, now you hear a lot of the things is that's not, that's not an indicator of success as a writer. And as, and it doesn't validate you any more of a writer than anyone else either. You know, I think as long as you're being true to yourself and what you're wanting to put out in the world, then that is success and the right people will find it, you know, and that almost seems like it sounds like your mentality is you want to write what's true to you and the right people are going to find it. With, you know? with an under, yes, I, I would absolutely agree, Vanessa. I, I think the, it, it's fair to say that I, I think about my market very carefully. Um, but I, but I'm, I will not follow the biggest wave. I want the really cool wave. I want the wave that you can, you can ride and it will just, it'll feel right. And you'll say, you know, I was able, part of, part of the wave, I think, is that if, you know, I've watched people who get so much success so quickly, they, they, it's like watching, it's like talking to people who were in a car accident. I know that sounds weird, that success, but, but, you, but follow me. It happens so quickly. And it's such an overload of the senses that you ask them, what was it like? What happened? Like, you know, I don't, I don't really know. And I've watched people's success. They're, they're juggling so many balls, so many offers that, that they, that it's particularly if you hope to have any other life, if you hope to have kids, if you hope to have something like some other string to your bow, other than just being a writer, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's temptations to me are largely, largely illusory. And when they're not illusory, they're usually fleeting. And those two things kind of, kind of keep me, I think I'd like to think centered. Well, I, th I think centered is, um, could be accurate. I would like to ask you this question because we have to wrap up this episode of the podcast. What advice would you give to authors out there? Well, that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, it, the first thing, if somebody was asking me for advice, I would say, where do you want to get published? What do you see yourself doing? If what you want to do is talk about predominantly direct electronic books, my, my first thing would be see my friend, Chris Kennedy at Chris Kennedy uh, publications and, and talk to him because he knows about that stuff. And he has, he has given, as you're aware, there's this whole other part now of the Kane Riordan universe, which came to life for that, a whole other audience. And when I did that, I knew I was going more for ripping yarns. But also, brand, part of my brand is a certain kind of attention to language, attention to structure, attention to constancy. Uh, and I won't, I won't sacrifice that. And, and we've had a wonderful 
working together in that direction. But if somebody wants to go to electronic, I'm going to tell them to go to an expert. I don't think I'm an expert about anything. Uh, I've been washed by many waters. I can say that. I would say that if you want traditional publishing, um, it's, a very, it's a very different market. Uh, 20 or 30 years ago, 40 years ago, if you didn't have an agent, the probability you were going to get published was very low. On the other hand, it was easier to get an agent because it was a, the, the slush pile reading that is now done in many other places was largely done by agents and their staff. And then you get through that, and then you get pushed you know, towards a publisher and the hit ratio was better. Now there's so much material out there that the hit ratio I think is, is poorer, but there are also fewer traditional imprints. I mean, right now, and if you take a look at who owns who, there are how many imprints really? There really aren't that many. The big five are, are, are barely the big five anymore. Yeah, They're big, really four the big four now because yeah. got eaten. Yeah. And, and Ace and Rock and, you know, Berkeley gets, and it exactly. And so um, if I had, by the way, just so you know, if I had to choose anybody to publish me, my first choice was who I got was Bain. And it has nothing to do with any of the things that people would normally think about Bain, which are largely partial or full misperceptions. I mean, everybody wants to talk about, well, you publish this person. Yeah, they also published the guy I write with Eric Flint. He's an avowed communist. So, you know, take that away, smoke it, sit with that for a while. Um, but they support series and they support the idea of, of lots of books that pay out. They don't have to put it over the outfield fence. It's nice when they do. And that gives you more margin, more ability to find you're actually, I think as an author, you're making a relationship with your fan base. The readers are finding you, they're finding your tone, you're learning who they are, and <clears throat> your ability to really create a very, I want to say, reliable pipeline is very strong. So this is ad advice to those of you out there who are thinking traditional publishing. Bain Books does that, Daw Books does that, because Daw has skin in the game. And, and yes, they're distributed through somebody else, but the bottom line is Daw calls a lot of its own shots. The bottom line with, with editors and, and publishing houses is when the publisher is also the editor, they have a whole step that they're really not worried about. And that's the step that the editor has to go and sell it to the business people. And that means they've got to compare it favorably to other things that are selling or be able to sell that this is the next big thing. And when I remember the first time I went to, they don't call it BEA anymore. You're familiar with BEA? Yeah. Uh, Book Expo America, right? Used to be in the Javits Center before we did the, before we no longer did these things. Huge, an immense glass palace. There was, there were banners for books. I kid you not. They were conservative estimate, 40 by 60 feet in dimension, hanging down, lit by the sun. Beautiful. They cost more to make than a standard publishing run of most books. Why? They're looking for the home run hitters. They, are, they, they go through authors. So bear this in mind, folks. Some of you will submit. You'll get published. You'll be thrilled. You're going to be the next big thing. They're looking for the next big thing. But they understand that for every next big thing, they're probably going to have three absolutely nots, two marginals that they'll look at for maybe another one or two books, four who will be good enough to bounce along with the midlist, and one who will be the next big thing if they're lucky. So the bottom line is you're not, you're being looked at individually. Yes, but you're also being looked at, being looked at as part of a numbers game. And it's not that their editors are mean people. It's that they have to answer to somebody 
who doesn't give a damn about that this is books. I was working at Simon & Schuster, believe it or not, on the Silhouette Romance series. True true Tales Out of School, 1980, uh, early spring and summer, 1984. First job after I tried to get a job up in Providence where I was going to school. And I came and I was there the day that Bertelman or whoever it was who started their first acquisitions of these came in and they were, and they, they wanted to announce what the new, the new ownership meant because at this point, uh, Simon Schuster was its own beast and, but had now been brought into a, a conglomerate. This the, the start of this process goes all the way back to 1984. So this has been going on for a while. The, the slow agglomeration of all of this stuff. <clears throat> and, uh, I was one of the few males working there. And, uh, and that, that kind of was, was interesting too, because it was a, it was a really good take on things. It's a really good take on how things get edited, but we're all shuffled into this room and the, the team from the acquisition, people who acquired the company was going to come in and present to us. Well, we're expecting a bunch of accountants and senior execs. And we're hoping that maybe one of them will at least be a woman, maybe one back in those days, 1983, 84. Come Barbie and Ken. They look that way. They're that age, and they come and they're wearing these big smiles, big big smiles. And they sit down. They smile. How's everybody doing today? I feel like I was on the Price is Right, and 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 I was being sold something, and you could see it coming. That we're here to liberate. The moment somebody is here to liberate you, you know it's the reverse. The moment they say that out loud, you could just you know it's like what and everything else is bullshit, right? Okay, so at any rate, in the defense industry, there's a saying, which is that if you're making a, a presentation to the government or the government's making a presentation to you on what you're pitching, they go on, they talk about what they like, they talk about what they like, and then they say, but, and the saying is, the axiom is, everything before but is bullshit. <laughs> so, so this was before I knew of that axiom, I was sitting there going, I don't like how this is going. And they said, the problem, the thing that is essentially, these are, it's paraphrased. The thing that's enslaved you is that you have all these special rules that, that are associated with how are you going to sell to this or how are you going to sell to that? That's going away. We are of the belief that you can have a simpler life because selling books is like selling encyclopedias is like selling shoes is like them selling encyclopedias and you could tell everybody who'd been in the room had been in the room more, who'd been in the business more than five years because if they didn't do this they went they went several shades of pale wherever they started from it was they knew what was happening was the death of editing and and books as we knew them and it's gone on and so all i'm saying i know this is a long story but it's a war story to make the point that this trend continues <clears throat> it doesn't mean that it grows greater and as a matter of fact, one of the best things that e-publishing has done is that it has made some wake up to the fact that audiences are a lot more proactive than they thought. And they'll let you know when they don't like something. Um, now I have to flip on the other side. You want to go to the electronic? Here's the thing. The good thing about working with traditional is there are still highly demanding gatekeepers in place. Your craft had better be to a certain minimum standard or you're going to have to walk it up to that standard or you're not probably going to get in. And if in, you're not going to stay there if you take too much work. The thing about electronic and self-publishing is, and I'm not saying that, there are, that, that no one's doing it well and is working up to the standard, but there's always the temptation to say, 
I've, I've worked on this enough. I want to get it out there. Whatever you get out there is going to go. This is the internet. Books may get pulled from library shelves, but the internet is forever, baby. And mm-hmm. if you have that thing out there, it's going to dog you for the rest of the time. So I think the thing there is, is that the value of working with tradition, and I would suggest a hybrid <coughs> career. I guess that's my final suggestion. Look hybrid. It's, it's easier to get started in self-publishing. You might want to start with a, a, a pseudonym if you're not really confident of your abilities yet. I know people who've sold big who started who, who weren't able to sell their books until they self-published. John Scalzi. John Scalzi, I believe Old Man's War was what, 16 parts that he, he self-published in sequence when, when we didn't even, the social media wasn't that big. He was doing it through his website, I think, on a sort of installment basis. And look at the career that that led to. Uh, Larry Correa, same thing. Larry Correa published his first couple of things, eBooks, and then got a bid from Bain. So there are ways to actually use one to leverage the other. Learn about the industry. And one of my axioms is, because you're usually asked these things, um, Remember that the very definition of a rule is that it is made by exceptions. This goes to your writing and this goes to your market strategy. Just because if somebody says, oh, you can't do that. I'm not saying be a mule about it. And granted, I'm sure that I could be, I'm sure the words of stubborn and determined are probably applied in equal measure to me. Um, But the bottom line is if you really have a strong feeling about something, you got to give yourself the time and the faith in yourself play it out. You, you're pro- even, if, even if it doesn't work, you're going to learn something along the way by playing it out. And it's going to shape the next thing you do, whether as a, as a purveyor of your craft or as a person building a market strategy for yourself. That is awesome. And it's amazing advice. I agree a hundred percent. Now, as we wrap up, how do fans find you and not your home address? I have to warn people of that because that's happened to me a couple of times on this podcast, which is weird, but how do fans find you? What is the best? You said Facebook. What is the best way to find you on Facebook? Chuck Gannon. Enter Chuck Gannon uh, and you're going to find me pretty soon. Um, enter Fire with Fire. There's a group page run by fans, made by fans called the Caneverse, uh, something Caneverse group page or fan page. I forget what it's called. Um, and uh, not, I go there all the time. I just don't pay attention. I know what it is. So I don't, it's like knowing your own, it's like knowing the phone number you always hit on speed dial, you know, because it's like you never actually have to do it. So, but if you look for, for Chuck Gannon or Charles E. Gannon and you go, you're going to find, it's going to be to me in two links. Um, I don't do Twitter very much. I'm on LinkedIn. I don't use it much. I don't find it has much facility for me. Given what we do, I, I find it hard to find out. I think if, you're, if you've got a side or complimentary hustle of working nonfiction and working tech writing or something like that or editing service, I think absolutely dive into LinkedIn. LinkedIn is, yeah. is your friend. It's, it's not that big of a, a game. What about, um, help you. so you have a fantasy series coming out. What is the name of the book? The name of the book is uh, This Broken World. And it is truth and advertising. That's exactly what's motivating the story. Something's this not broken right with world. This broken and it world. comes out when? November. This is exciting. And you've already written book two, correct? Book two is being written right now. Uh, there will probably be a Kane Reorden release, book number six in 2022. But before then, there will be probably nine novellas and two or three more novels in the Murphy's Lawless series, which was another thing we can talk about regarding marketing, but I realized very quickly 
that the pace of reading right now and audience demand, people used to wait gladly for a year, year and a half for a book. Not anymore. So I looked at it and I said, I got to do something that, that keeps, keeps the drum beating. So I did. Very cool. Lots, you have lots been to fantastic find. to have on this show. I can't wait to literally <laughs> rapid fire questions because of the <laughs> bourbon. Um, so you have been fantastic. Thank you so much, Chuck, for being on our show. Uh, I've had a great time. Thank you. I, I took a look at your, at your, uh, at your episodes before. Uh, I, I reviewed it and I, I stand by that review. Uh, I think it's a great show. I think it's fun. I think, I think the fact that it is, its energy comes from the fact that it is functionally devoid of format. And that's a good thing because that's, because let's put it like this. If you go into a, let's say you go on a date or let's say you're just meeting somebody, a business meeting, and you get the sense that somebody's got half of this conversation scripted. You're not really having fun. It may be useful. It may be informative. But you know that there's another game going on. And, the, and it may not be nefarious. It may simply be watching the clock. I, I feel like if, you know, the bottom line is electrons are cheap. Digital media no longer required. We're in the cloud. We'll let it roll. And we'll, we'll go wherever we go and say whatever we say. And I love it. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for letting me play. I look forward to the next part. Absolutely. This has been wonderful. So I've been your host, Erica Lance. My co-host has been... Vanessa Valiente. And we will see you next time.